But this one, you know, I got the call that the you know site was down, and then it was two hours, and then it was five hours. We were hard down for 22 straight hours. We vaporized 10 billion dollars of market capitalization in 24 hours. And so what I did was the only thing I knew how to do in that situation is be there. Welcome to Leadership with Lisa. This is Lisa Carmen Wang, U.S. national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur and executive leadership coach. This is a show that dives into deeply personal stories from the world's most impactful leaders, transforming the face of business and culture as we know it. You'll learn powerful leadership lessons to help you become more passionate, purposeful, and powerful in your life. Are you ready to dive in? Let's do it. Two years ago, I launched the Enoughness podcast to answer the question, how much is good enough? I was trying to deal with my own issues of inadequacy and wondering why I still felt stuck in my small self, that insecure, shy, fearful self. Wondering why external achievements didn't automatically translate into confidence and better leadership. After 23 episodes, I discovered that while external achievements can shine a light on what you're capable of, what truly catapults you into becoming your best self is the recognition of your ability to impact others, to change lives by simply showing up more authentically and fully. I call this the enoughness moment. The moment at which your own shame and insecurities pale in comparison to your desire to uplift others. How much more impact could you create if you committed to showing up as your best self today? Today, I'm committing to exactly that. I'm excited to announce the rebrand of the Enoughness podcast with the launch of Leadership with Lisa a podcast that shares the most powerful leadership lessons I've learned alongside the most impactful leaders I have met along my journey who are transforming the face of business and culture as we know it. When I envisioned who I could be, I realized that the best version of Lisa is as a leader. To me, being a leader is creating light and hope for people to become their best selves. When you live authentically and powerfully as your best self, you inadvertently give others permission to do the same. That is what the Leadership with Lisa podcast is here to do. Through this podcast, I commit to sharing with you my best self in hopes of empowering you to do the same, to live a more passionate, purposeful, and powerful life. If you're interested in taking your leadership skills and potential to the next level, you can work with me directly through the GLOW Executive Leadership Program at theglow.org. And you can find more resources at lisacarmenwang.com. Enjoy the first episode in this new chapter. Today's guest is Meg Whitman. She is without a doubt one of the most formidable leaders in the world today. She's worth $4 billion and is best known for taking eBay from $5.7 million to $8 billion in sales as eBay's CEO from 1998 to 2008. She then became the CEO of Hewlett-Packard, where she oversaw the split into HP Inc. and Hewlett-Packard Enterprise. She remains on the boards of Procter & Gamble and Dropbox. In 2018, she became the CEO of Quibi, 
Jeffrey Katzenberg's new short-form video platform that closed a billion dollars in funding. In today's episode, Meg shares with us how she was able to step into such high-pressure, high-profile roles with confidence and courage. When we enter into new roles and new environments where we may not have all the information or not feel fully prepared, it's important to stay present and curious. Remember, it's okay not to have all the answers all the time. It's okay to ask for help. Instead of immediately trying to go in and fix the problem, look around and see and observe what's going well and how can we do more of that? What information can we gather instead of jumping immediately to conclusions? In leadership positions, it's inevitable that we'll face difficult challenges and decisions. But in those situations, the most important thing we can do is just show up rather than avoiding or creating excuses. The majority of life, 80% of it, is just showing up. And when you do, show up fully and authentically and put your best foot forward because that's the best that we can do. So in this episode, I hope you're inspired and you learn incredible lessons from Meg. I know I did. And just remember, no matter what it is you're pursuing, commit to showing up fully. Commit to putting your best foot forward. Meg, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm super glad to be here. And first question for you is, how do you define power? I I guess I would have to define power as good leadership. And I think, you know, particularly right now, leadership is incredibly important, whether it's in government or business or, you know, healthcare or whatever. And uh, Tom Friedman wrote a very interesting article in the um, New York Times in his op-ed piece, I think two days ago, and it was entitled... Um, the world needs great leaders now, and here's what it looks like. And so I just think, you know, servant leadership and having a clear vision and um, bringing people along and, um, you know, sharing the truth with folks, um, you know, strong relationships are always built on, on truth. And so that's what I think about when I think about great leadership, which I suppose, you know, maybe to some degree leads to power. Yeah. And I, well, I think about the word power in the way that it doesn't in and of itself as a word have a negative or positive charge it's just that unfortunately the leaders who have embodied the word power have you know oftentimes we've seen that abused or misused in different ways but now that we have a, a whole crop of new diverse leaders coming up who are redefining that word so yes. you're being one of them what was a moment in your life when you felt the most powerless and this can be personal or professional when you really hit a low point and had to find a way to turn yourself around? Yeah, I think um, maybe two. Um, The first was um, at my second job out of business school at Bain and Company. And Bain, as you know, is a highly analytical place. And um, I was an economics major, so I was pretty quantitative. But I remember my first boss, basically at Bain and Company, saying to me, you're a terrible analyst. (laughs) I was like, like, okay, I've never been terrible at anything. What are you saying? And I had to really take it on board. And I basically said, okay, I am going to learn how to be the best analyst that I can possibly be. And, uh, you know, just doubled down and asked for help and, you know, really said, this is clearly, this is something that's going to be required for success very early in my career. And I'm going to figure it out. Um, but it was quite a, a stab in the heart. I'm like, like, how is that even possible? And then um, I think it's, you know, reasonably well known. My first CEO job was at a company called FTD which was a a leveraged buyout by Perry Associates and Bain uh, Capital. And I got fired from that job. 
And uh, so being tired is always a low point. But, you know, you just basically say you got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and keep on going. And it was good preparation for losing the governor's race because that was a very public uh, loss. And, uh, you know, it was and the difference between being at a company where you're part of something, you know, it's, you know, you and your company, it's me and Quibi. Um, it was me and, you know, Procter and Gamble or whatever it happened to be. When you run for office, it's a referendum on you. And so it feels, it's pretty, I found it to be really difficult and, and quite painful when you lose. But again, you pick yourself up and say, okay, we're you know, going to get on with it. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I know you talk about is running to the fire instead yeah. of, and it seems like you've clearly done that in stepping into roles where you may not have you know, into technology companies where you maybe you didn't have that technology expertise. So how do you step into these new roles with confidence, even if maybe there's a little voice inside of you that's like, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's gotten easier as I have gotten older. You know, it's really scary when you're in your 20s, but then you begin to have what I call pattern recognition. You've seen the similar problems before. And um, so when I go into a new situation, I'm uh, always alert to learning and to understanding and to listening. And before I make any sudden moves, what can I learn and what patterns can I see that I've, I've dealt with before? And um, it's one of the great things about Quibi, which is you know, my new company in LA, because between myself and my partner, Jeffrey Katzenberg, you know, we've seen just about every business situation. So we have a pretty good sense of, we actually can say, you know what, we've seen this before and we know what to do. So experience is a good thing. And then um, the other thing is when I go into a company, for sure, I always look for the good. You know, when you come into a new situation, your instinct is, what are they doing wrong? What do I need to go fix? Otherwise, you wouldn't be there. Like if everything was great, you wouldn't be there. It's the wrong instinct. The best instinct is, what are they doing right? And how do we do more of it? And HP was a very challenged company when I joined. But my view was, how do we figure out what they're doing well, do more of that while we fix the to-do list? And eBay, you know, I was employee number 30, but eBay was growing at 70% compound monthly growth rate. And I said, hmm, how about we figure out what we're doing right and we do more of that um, as opposed to, you know, try to impose too much discipline on the situation or, or whatever it happened to be. Yeah, I, I actually, I read about the, there was this one moment in at eBay when you, I think it was said June five o'clock in 1999, um, where there was the blackout. How do you deal with those sorts of unexpected situations? And that was, of course, another very public instance. Yes, where it was. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's um, situational leadership in some ways. You know, I mean, eBay had been unstable from a technology perspective for several months. But it would, it would go down for five or 10 minutes and come back up the, the site because it was a website. You know, there were no such thing as apps back in the day. And um, but this one, you know, I got the call that, the you know, a site was down and then it was two hours and then it was five hours. We were hard down for 22 straight hours. We vaporized $10 billion of market capitalization in 24 hours. And so what I did was the only thing I knew how to do in that situation is be there. So I basically showed up at the network operations center, what we call a knock, and I never, I didn't leave eBay for three weeks. You know, we set up conference rooms with 
bunks and, um, you know, toiletries. We had showers there and I just moved in because I felt like I, the only thing I could really do was be there, make sure the engineers had the resources, make sure the vendors were there like Oracle and Cisco and um, those folks, Verisign were all there with their very best people and, um, you know, try to lead the team. Cause I certainly wasn't going to be able to actually um, reconstruct the app, but it was leadership by being there and trying to get the um, the right resources in place for the team that actually could fix the problem. And that's a that's a great story because I think that what as I was just reading through everything that you've done, what you consistently do is you show up as the best version of yourself, no matter what the situation is. And I think that's really I think a message that a lot of people need to hear is just you know it's it is about it's it's about just committing right, committing to make the best of any situation. That's exactly right. And you just have to know that you're going to be able to work through it. I have to say, there was a little scary time. At about 22 hours, I looked at Pierre Amidiar, who was the founder of eBay. And uh, as I said, he was 26 at the time. And I looked at him and I said, Pierre, what are we going to do if the engineers cannot bring the, app, the site back up? And he said, don't worry, Meg. In about an hour, a DBA, a database administrator, is going to come running in here. And they're going to say, we figured it out. We figured it out. And the site is coming up. And I looked at Pierre and went, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> An hour later, a DBA came running in and said, "We're going to bring the we're going to bring the site up." So you have to you have to just got to maintain hope. But you also, I do think that this notion of um, you know real truth and being able to, if you cannot name the problem, you can't fix it. And you'd be surprised in how many organizations it's hard for the organization to actually name the problem, whether it's. They don't, they're embarrassed to name the problem or they don't actually know what the problem is or it's politically incorrect to name the problem. Like it's so great when actually the whole organization can say, here's the problem that allows you to go figure out how you're going to fix it. And um, no point in wasting time trying to name the problem. Let's get on with trying to figure out what we're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, you can't deal with things in the darkness if they're kept there. You need to actually shed light on them. Exactly right. I wanted to talk briefly about your, just where your courage and optimism comes from. I know that, you know, when you went to business school, you were part of that beginning edge of women who are, you know, really starting to, to come into those professional degrees. So tell me about that experience and how maybe that or other parts of your life have given you the courage to do what you do today. Yeah. Well, I think like so many of, of women of my generation, and you're right, we were on the vanguard of the first wave of um, certainly business school um, people who, who, you know, women in business school. Um, and I'm, my, I think it really comes from my mom. My mom was an extraordinary person. And, um, you know, I'll tell you a little story that will inform you. So she was born and raised in Boston. And during World War II, she wanted to, you know, join the war effort, but there were not very many, rule, many roles for women. So she joined the Red Cross. And she went to the Red Cross Recruitment Center and they said, well, this class of women we're going to send to New Guinea in the South Pacific. And so we need you to be, in three days, we need you to be fly from Boston to LA and then get on a troop ship for 30 days to New Guinea. And um, so my mom said, okay. And when they landed, this base commander greeted this whole troop ship full of women. And they said, we need mechanics, truck mechanics and airplane mechanics, which of you women would like to volunteer? My mother never looked under the hood of anything. And she said, okay, well, if that's where the need is greatest, I guess I'm going to go figure it out. Long story short, four years later, she was a fully certified airplane mechanic and a fully certified truck mechanic. And so she said to my sister and my brother and me, 
if I can figure out how to be an airplane mechanic, you can do anything. Just give it your all and go in and have the confidence. And for some reason, we believed it. And uh, so I think she was sort of the, the first inspiration. And, um, you know, you sort of just go from there. Um, you know, you just have to have some confidence that, you know, you can figure it out. Yeah. And did you, do you feel like that carried you through? Because I'm, I'm curious to, when you lost the political race, you know, what happened the day after, how you were feeling and how you jumped back up again? Yeah. Well, it was very, very difficult. It's the most difficult thing I've ever had to um, deal with, I think, was the race itself and then the loss. And the next day is really devastating because you go from doing eight or 10 events a day where everything is so busy. The next day you have literally nothing to do, nothing. And your friends don't call you because they feel so badly for you. So you're sort of sitting there going, oh, this is horrible. You know, my reputation that I've spent 30 years building is completely in shambles. And um, so you, so I'll have to tell you a story. So that happened in November. And then in December, I was home at four o'clock in the afternoon, one afternoon, and I was watching Ellen DeGeneres, who I love, in our family room. And my husband comes home from the hospital. He's a doctor. And he sees me in the family room at four o'clock in the afternoon. He goes, oh, this is really not good. You have got to pull your socks up and figure out what you're going to do. And as if on cue, Mark Andreessen called of Andreessen Horowitz and said, you know, we're looking for board members for HP. We have a new CEO, a new strategy, and you'd be a perfect board member. You and I could sit on the tech committee together. It would be super fun. And so sometimes, you know, another door opens. And then, of course, six months later, I was on the board and ended up being asked to be CEO. So, you know, it was really tough, though, I have to say. It was really tough. And I, I, I still have, I think, a little post-traumatic stress syndrome from that governor's race, even though it was gosh, 12 years ago, if you can believe it. Well, 10 years ago, 10 years ago. I'm curious, what were some of the thoughts that were going through your head the day and months after? I think, um, you know, there's the, the woulda, coulda, shoulda, you know, if I'd only done this or I'd only done that. Okay. Like not useful, honestly. Um, and then, you know, uh, I think the re I was terribly worried about the reputational damage because the things that are said about you in politics is just extraordinary. I mean, honestly, most of it's not true, but it's very difficult to fight back against it. And, um, and then what I realized is when I talked to friends in politics, it was like, yeah, but you're in politics. Like everyone loses races in politics. It's not even a big deal. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't know. This seems like a pretty big deal to me. So, you know, I had to have the perspective of that's the nature of that industry. And, you know, when you lose a race, you lose a race. The people in that industry, in that, you know, line of work, they're like, yeah, yeah, that happens all the time. Don't worry about it. And so, yeah. you know, I thought that was, I think that was a difficult thing for me. Yeah, I think so many people just over like overthink what other people's judgment will be, fear what other people's reactions are, and that either prevents them from taking action or um, it, it paralyzes them in different ways. And especially like I think it's actually the more successful you get, the more there's that fear of that reputation, right? Because it's, it, you care even more about what people think. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Although I think if you begin to have a track record, you actually have more courage. Um, you know, when I decided to join forces with Jeffrey Katzenberg to launch our new startup in LA, I mean, this was a completely green startup, at least at eBay, I was employee number 30, there was 4 million in revenue. This was March 1st of 2018. It was Jeffrey Katzenberg and me sitting in a conference room looking at each other. I mean, we had nothing. We didn't have any employees. We hadn't raised our first stitch of money. The business plan was in its earliest, earliest stages. And, you know, we just said, listen, 
you know, we don't know that it's going to work, we're, but we're pretty excited about the idea and, you know, we're going to dive in. And, at, you know, at the time, 62 and 67 years old, you know, it's not exactly the time that most people do startups. Yeah. So let's, let's dive into that. So I'm a, a serial entrepreneur. So I've been there a number of times where it's just your dreams and your belief in your dreams. And so I'm, I'm excited that you are in the world of entrepreneurship. And I also have downloaded Quibi and have been watching some shows and been Fantastic. Um, really interested in uh, even the, the way that the playbacks and everything. So tell me first about this relationship that you see between Silicon Valley and Hollywood and how you are innovating. Yeah. Well, the idea when um, Jeffrey and I got together was, could we bring the best of Hollywood, the production values, the stars, the producers, the writers, directors, and bring that um, Hollywood production value to viewing your video on the mobile phone. And viewing video on mobile before Quibi was good. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but yeah, you could see, like if you watched YouTube holding your phone in portrait, it'd be a little postage stamp at the top, but, but it was great video. And uh, we said, but if we could make this platform something really special that showcased that talent and showcased that content in a really unique way, then maybe there was something about bringing together the best of Hollywood and the best of Silicon Valley. The other thing we were struck by is technology has always enabled new ways to tell stories in Hollywood. Think about, go all the way back to the motion picture industry. Okay, the motion picture camera predated the motion picture industry. The invention of the television set predated TV. And so what we hope we've done here is created a technology platform that is differentiated enough that it enables the storytellers to tell stories in new ways. And so it's an app. You, you know, you go to the App Store or the Play Store and download the app, as I'm sure you did. And we hope you feel like you've got something quite special in your hands with the quality of storytelling and what you reference, which is full screen video, whether you're holding your phone in portrait or in landscape. So you watch the way you want to watch for the situation in which you're watching. Hmm. And so what are the biggest differences in storytelling that you're seeing that creators are able to work with on the Quibi format? Yeah. Well, first of all, every um, episode of our movie, we have what we call movies and chapters, and they are full length movies, um, as you've seen on the app, but they are told in chapters of 10 minutes or less. So they have to write the story in a different way. They have to have little baby story arcs um, for each 10 minutes. And my best analogy for you is the Da Vinci Code. You might recall that the Da Vinci Code is 464 pages and 105 chapters. Every chapter in the Da Vinci Code is only five, five pages. And the reason is Dan Brown said, I don't think my users have, my readers have 40 minutes anymore. I think if you have five minutes, I want you to read one chapter. If you've got 10 minutes, I want you to read two chapters. But he had to write the Da Vinci Code the same way our storytellers have to write their movies. And then they have to be shot so that it looks fantastic in portrait and fantastic in landscape. And most movie um, people are used to shooting in landscape. Think about your TV screen or your desktop screen or the movie screen. And so they had to say, how can I, and what they have to do is they have to give us a vertical edit and a portrait edit, and we put them together so that we can show you the right edit, depending on which way you hold the phone. And so from the production to the rendering to the technology, it's a completely different way. And yet they have been super excited about how to tell stories in new ways and use everything that this phone has to offer. Steven Spielberg's doing a show for us, which will be out later this year, called After Dark. And he only wanted people to be able to watch his show after dark. And I said, why do you want to do that? And he said, because it'd be scarier. 
So we said, well, guess what? Your phone knows exactly what time it is, wherever you are. It knows when the sun sets and when the sun rises. So what we'll do is we'll only allow people to watch your show after sunset. And when the sun starts to come up, the virtual film will melt away and you can't watch it until the evening. And that takes advantage of something that's quite unique about the smartphone. I mean, it really ups the ante for each segment to be phenomenal in and of itself so that it captures you enough to take you to the next one. Exactly right. Exactly right. So if you're watching, you know, Survive or The Most Dangerous Game with Liam Hensworth or, you know, Free Ray Sean that's done by Anton Fuqua, you can see, now that I've told you that, you'll see how the, how the chapters are written to be little baby cliffhangers. And how has the adoption been and the retention rate through each of these episodes? Yeah. So um, what's interesting about if you begin watching an episode on Quibi, 80% of the people complete that episode, which is extraordinary. Now, the episode's only 10 minutes. So I'm not asking you to invest an hour, which is part of why we have these short things. And then um, we have great retention through our top shows. You know, every single day, there were more watchers of The Most Dangerous Game than there were the day before. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's a, that's a bona fide hit on, on Quibi. So we're super excited about this. Yeah. And, um, you know, it seems like people are beginning to experiment with all kinds of different content, learn their way around the app. And um, so it's early days. And we don't know about retention yet because we offered a 90-day free trial um, if you signed up through the end of April. So that cohort, we won't know whether they roll to pay. We won't know whether you decide to pay for 90 more days. And I, I mean, what this really allows is for people to watch during their in-between moments. And yeah. has COVID-19 at all changed that? Or are you finding people have more in-between moments? Because I guess all everything's kind of in-between. It's different in-between moments. We built this app to be on the go. So you get up in the morning, you get on your commute, whether it's a bus or a subway or whatever, you maybe stand in line for a cup of coffee at Starbucks, you're at a doctor's office waiting, you're waiting for friends for lunch. There's all these 10 minute intervals during the day that you spend a lot of time waiting. And uh, so that's how it was designed. When we decided to launch, we said, we think there are in-between moments at home. We don't actually know, but we think there are. And, and it's turning out that that's the case, whether it's in-between work interviews or work meetings, whether it's in-between wrangling the kids or cooking dinner or waiting to do a virtual you know, happy hour with friends. Um, there are in-between moments, but it's different. And so I'm quite anxious for a whole host of reasons, but I'm quite anxious to get back to the use case that, that Quibi was built for. Um, but but people seem to be finding those in-between moments uh, when they're, you know, sheltering in place. Yeah. And what's your dream for the legacy of Quibi? Well, thank you for asking. So as I said, there's been a long history of, of technology enabling new ways to tell stories. And I hope that maybe we will enable the next generation of filmed narrative. So as I said, there were movies that were two hours in length designed to be watched in movie theaters. Then there was television shows, which were largely 30 minutes or 60 minutes designed to be watched in your living room. And we hope we'll unleash a whole nother generation of film narrative from Hollywood that was designed to be watched on your smartphone. So that's the dream. Amazing. Do you think, think back to when you were a girl and where you are now, do you think that, did you dream of this or do you think that it's evolved and how do you think she would have looked at you now? (laughs) You know, it's funny, I think I, I think it really wasn't until college that I had sort of a 
you know, a, a worldview really greater than my, you know, my little life. Um, I think I went to college thinking I was going to be a doctor. So I went to college as pre-med and I got through, you know, chemistry and physics and calculus and biology. And then I hit organic chemistry. And at, at halfway through that fall semester, I was like, okay, this is, and of course, organic chemistry is designed to weed out the non-serious. And um, I was like, okay, this is really not good. <laughs> I got to figure out what else I'm going to do, because if this is what being a doctor is, this is not good for me. Now, of course, that's not what being a doctor is all about in it by any stretch, but it was a great weeding out function. So then I said, you know, what else would be fun to do? And I was selling advertising for a student um, publication. And I said, selling advertising, that's kind of like business, you know, maybe this would be fun. So it was really kind of the joy of, of discovery and it unfolded over the years. Yeah. And what brings you joy now? Well, I think a couple of things. First is um, obviously my family and I'm a new grandmother of a 10 month old baby boy. So Ooh. my youngest son um, has a, a baby who is the cutest thing ever. I'm just a besotted grandmother. I can't even tell you. Um, so that brings me a lot of joy. Of course, my husband and my, um, you know, sons and their wives and girlfriends. And then I do love to work. You know, I love to work. I love, I love the joy of, of figuring things out. You know, what should we do next? How does the puzzle pieces fit together? And then in our free time, you know, we love to hike, big hiking family. Um, so, you know, hopefully I'll get out a little bit this weekend, do some hiking. Yeah. What sort of advice would you give to rising ambitious leaders, um, especially female leaders? I think there's yeah. going to be more and more and who are, whether it's perhaps lacking confidence or just lacking clarity on exactly yeah. what it is what they should be doing? Oh, I think you have to be open to possibilities. Um, I think it's very hard as a coming out of college to know exactly, I mean, there are some people who know exactly what they want to do, but I think the vast majority are in a little bit of a joy of discovery, you know? And so I would say, take that college time frame and do some internships in different areas and see what you like. And then, you know, the good news is when I came out of business school, we did think we were going to spend most of our career at one company that's not the case anymore. You know, you can hop around, you can, you know, go from one thing to another. Um, failure is no longer a black mark, particularly in Silicon Valley. If you've had a failure, if you've been associated with a company that didn't work, actually people think you're more valuable because you've learned hard lessons. Um, so I think the cost of failure is much lower than it was, you know, when I graduated from business school. So, you know, be open to possibilities, be open to taking risk. I always ask the question, what's the worst thing that can happen here? Okay, you know, the good news about business is no one usually dies. My husband's a neurosurgeon and what he does is life or death. In business, you know, business might not work, you might lose market share, the business might go out of business, but no one gets, you know, no one dies for the most part. And so you just have to have that perspective, which is, it's gonna be okay. And, you know, bad things can happen, but we'll pick ourselves up and, you know, if it doesn't work, we'll do something else. Yeah, that's great. You know, it's interesting because I think about mortality probably more than your average person, but I think it, it gives me a sense of urgency um, mm -hmm. to really not let my fears overcome me, to not let fear of what other people think hold me back. And yeah, and realize that a lot of like fears are really an illusion, something that you can overcome. I think that's really good advice. And uh, also, if you're an entrepreneur, you know this, don't listen to people who tell you it can't be done. Because if it hasn't been done before, well, people are going to say, well, if, this if it's possible, it would have been done by now. 
And you know, as an entrepreneur, that's absolutely not the case. And good ideas that you know, now seem completely obvious you know, people said, you're out of your mind. You know, that's definitely not going to work. And so you can't listen to the naysayers to, you know, to an extreme. You want to, you want to hear them, but you don't want to let them dissuade you. Yeah. Well, I have two more questions for you. Very quick ones. What is your unique superpower? And I think about the superpower being something that you're uniquely good at, but also impacts other people in their lives. Um, I think I am very now good and experienced at laying out a vision for what we're trying to accomplish and then being able to lay out the strategy to get there. Um, And um, I think I've turned into quite a good communicator of business strategy over time. By the way, I was helped by running for governor. I got to be a much better communicator running for governor because governor, when you run in politics, it's not about the facts and the figures. It's about the stories that you tell. And uh, so I think probably those three. And then I love building teams, Um, particularly now. I love also bringing along younger executives, giving them shots, letting them, you know, run as far and as fast as as they can. And that's something that really probably started, you know, five or seven, eight years ago. You get to a point in your career where it's super fun to watch the next generation take off and shine and particularly um, young women. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and last question is, what does it mean to you to be a woman? Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a hard question. Um, so listen, I, uh, I think, you know, for me, the journey here has, um, you know, how do I try to be um, the best wife, the best mother, now the best grandmother I can be, while also, um, you know, doing things that I um, get a lot of joy from. And it, 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 for me, I had to sort of make trade-offs every time. I couldn't be, as I said, the perfect wife, the perfect mother, the perfect hostess, the perfect, you know, dressed individual. I had to make trade-offs. And, you know, no one can do it all. In my view, no one can be perfect. And so you just gravitate to the things that mean the most to you. And, um, you know, I, I've always sort of felt like I have to be true to myself. I can't be someone that I'm not. When I started at Procter & Gamble, I've gone by Meg my whole life. But when I started my first job, I said, you know, Meg doesn't sound very serious. Maybe I should have everyone call me Margaret. And so for the first like three months at Procter & Gamble, I went by Margaret. And then three months, and I'm like, this is crazy. It's like not my authentic self. <laughs> and, and so I think there was an early lesson for me about trying to be your authentic self. Mm. Yeah, I, I think authenticity is, that's what real confidence is to be to be able to be whoever it is that you are and exist fully and show up like that. That's where you really get your, get your power and get your strength and be able to make the impact that you want to make. Yeah. Well, good. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for asking about Quibi and thanks for having me on your, uh, your podcast. Thank you so much, Meg. All right. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. If you're ready to level up in your career and become a more powerful and purposeful leader, head over to theglow.org forward slash leadership to join our executive leadership training program. Again, that's T-H-E-G-L-O-W.org forward slash leadership to join today. You can find me at Lisa Carmen Wang on all social channels and lisacarmenwang.com. Never forget... You are enough. You are powerful. Now go out there and change the world.